On May 13, 2015, Savas Savopoulos, his wife Amy, their 10-year-old son Philip, and their housekeeper Vera Figueroa were held for 19 hours in their home in Washington, D.C. DNA found on pizza crust that was left inside the home led police to arrest one man, Darren Went. He's pled not guilty to all charges against him. He's currently in jail, and his trial is set for September 2018. So you're in the area of where the Porsche was torched on May 14th, 2015. Were you working that day? Yes, I was. Two of us were leaving and going to our cars in the parking lot. And there was a gentleman uh, walking through the parking lot that just made me uneasy. So I'd stopped my coworker and said, let's just kind of huddle here, hold your purse, talk. Let's not go to our cars till we see what he, where he's going and what, what is his deal. And I can still to this day see him, see his, what he was wearing, the necklace, hair, jeans, the belt, the whole nine yards. And it just it was a very uneasy feeling. And I've been here for years and never had that feeling. Um, so he stopped, turned around near our cars and walked back the other way, kind of looked around and then came back past us again. Now, once he was past, we went and got in our cars and we mm. left. And it was probably within 10 minutes after we left before the, um, the Porsche was set on fire. Was that person Darren went? When I saw his picture um, the following day, most definitely. That was an eyewitness who didn't want to reveal her name, but told us she was in the parking lot of the shopping center where Amy Savopoulos's Porsche was torched on May 14th, 2015, around 5 p.m. She was adamant that Darren Went was there and nervously casing the parking lot. But this eyewitness also says that Darren is not the same man that appears running from the burning Porsche in the surveillance video that police had released just days before Darren Went was arrested. There's a video from this, you know, this, there's obviously a shopping center, there's many stores here. There's a video of somebody in a back parking lot here adjacent to the church running with a hood over their mm -hmm. head in mm -hmm. a bucket. Right. Is that someone you all had ever seen? Do you know who that person would might be? Um, other than it was, I, I can say, it was not the person that I saw in the parking lot. The build was not the same. Mm. That it was a bad, grainy picture for from the end that I saw, okay? Um, small in stature. Mm, can't tell because you couldn't see the face. The hood was covering so well by the video. Right. I, I do know they looked for the bucket for days and couldn't find it anywhere in, in this vicinity. And so you're very sure that it was not the man with the wife beater? My opinion, absolutely not. It was completely different size, a lot smaller. So an eyewitness doesn't believe that Darren was the only person in the parking lot that night. Darren Wentz's former attorneys advised us to examine those in the arrest warrant, and police have stated from the start there were multiple people involved in these murders. But aside from Darren Went, no one has been named a suspect or arrested. Here's what we do know from the media and the arrest warrant. Jordan Wallace was named in the arrest warrant by police. Wallace was raised in Annapolis, Maryland, a quaint town that sits on the Chesapeake Bay, about a 40-minute drive from Washington, D.C. He graduated from Annapolis High School in 2005, and Wallace's parents were separated. His mother, according to news outlets, worked at a church in Annapolis at the time of the murders. This is the home that belongs to his mother, where he supposedly lived. It's for sale and empty. His mother works at this church, but staff say she has not been to work in now over a week. Jordan Wallace's father, 
Michael LaVon Wallace, was reportedly a former Prince George's County police officer, an area just outside of Washington, D.C. He's never been named a suspect or a person of interest in this case. What we did find out about him was that he has a long history of financial issues. We found several court records of Michael Wallace's money woes, seven civil judgments in total. In 2010, Michael Wallace had a lien of judgment for $1,500 for unpaid tax. 2010, Beneficial Financial Inc. against Wallace settled in the amount of $7,668. And on January 20th, 2015, just four months before the Savopolis murders, Michael Wallace had a federal tax lien of $61,247 on a home in Annapolis, Maryland. And for two years, around 2009, Michael lived in the same apartment development as Samantha Wendt, Darren Wendt's sister. We called Mr. Wallace to talk about his son and possibly get an interview, but he declined and texted me the following. Do not call or text me again. Thank you. Also, do not come to my house or workplace. Thanks in advance. For a couple of years prior to the murders, Jordan Wallace held a job at Autobahn Speedway and events in Jessup, Maryland, another suburb of D.C. We headed up there to see if we could speak to anyone at the Autobahn Speedway and events. For the first time ever, you are hearing from an employee who worked directly with Jordan and considered him a friend. Garrett Walker, who is still currently an employee at Autobahn Speedway, is tall, dark hair, glasses, thin, and very young. Looks like he's in his early 20s. He also doesn't look like a typical racer. He looks like someone who might be more into online gaming. He says that Jordan had a good personality and did his job well. So tell us um, what Jordan was like. Very outgoing. He did his job well. His job was basically, um, I have a job now, of course. He was director of competition. So what he did was he marketed Autobahn on a competition level, like getting people from outside doing special events and whatnot, running our leagues and clinics and whatnot. And he was really good at it. He was able to use his personal relationships to his advantage, using people that he knew to get to other people to bring, you know, all sorts of different types of people in here and racing. From Jordan Wallace's social media pages, which were deleted shortly after the murders, it was clear that he was devoted to racing. He loved it. Before he deleted his Instagram, his handle was Jordan underscore racing. His Insta was littered with pictures of Wallace driving expensive cars, some of them belonging to the Savopolis family and at racing competitions. Fox 5 reporter Marina Morocco tried for weeks to interview Wallace after the murders, but she says he was an elusive character. He completely just fell off the face of the earth. I mean, he went MIA. He did the interviews with police, and we tried to get him, and the best we could do was find pictures of his Instagram that associated him with Salva Slavopoulos. He would post pictures driving the Porsche that was Amy's car that was later found burned, uh, saying, you know, my job is so cool, I'm so lucky to have this job. So he didn't really have, at least not in the... on. Um, the interwebs, he didn't show that he had any sort of dislike towards his bosses. He showed that he loved his job. He was a race car driver. That's how Savas and him met because Philip shared that same passion of race car driving. That's how they met Jordan. But he is still a character that we can't get down to the bottom of who he is because he completely went MIA. Garrett Walker goes on to explain even further Jordan's love of racing. The two traveled together to a competition in California, and the cost of being involved in a sport like that was enormous. Tell us about, so he was big into racing here and outside of racing. Yes. So 
What was that life like? Did he talk about it a lot? Um, you know, was he very passionate about that? Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, he was very passionate about racing. He he used just about all the money he had on racing, I'm pretty sure. We went out in 2014 to a big national kart race in California, and uh, that was my first big racing experience to that scale. But that was his that was his forte. That was where he belonged, I'm pretty sure. He, lo- he was absolutely in love with that sort of thing. So, and, you know, obviously from what the research that we've been doing, racing takes a ton of money mm-hmm. to competitively do. Yes. Okay, talk to me because you're kind of in that world. How, what kind of money? How much? Like, what are we talking about? So, one of our ex-league racers actually was just promoted to British Formula 3. Before that, he won the championship for U.S. Formula 2000. The entry fee for that was at least $100,000. That And both of his parents were CEOs of something. So that's that helps a lot. <laughs> At some point in 2015, Savas Sabopoulos and little Philip had become regular visitors to the Autobahn Raceway and had met Jordan. A few months later, after Jordan left the raceway, according to the arrest warrant, Wallace had stated that he became an employee of Savas Sabopoulos. And his job consisted of transporting Savas and handling daily assignments given to him. And it was obvious from Jordan's social media accounts that he had a lot of access to the Sabopoulos family. As we mentioned, he was driving cars and posting pictures in Amy's vehicle with all kinds of captions. On the day that Savas and his family were held hostage, May 13th, Jordan was working at Savas's dojo studio in Chantilly. And Nellie Gutierrez, the family's former maid, who is still alive, also told us that she saw Jordan that day in the parking lot having a conversation with Savas. Yeah, and Jordan was eating lunch outside, but I say hi to him. But then I focus on my own work and I never, uh, uh, the time that he left, I'm, I'm not sure it was one thirty or 2 30 or 3 30, but I know he left. He, he, that day he was leaving early, but I, I'm not sure what time because I'm the one who closed the business for him. I stay there until we're done. And he left, you know, Saba left around between 4.45 and 5 that evening when he asked me if I can close his business. I say, okay. But after that, nobody came to the studio. The following day, May 14th, Jordan Wallace delivers a package to the Savopolis home with $40,000 cash in it. The strangest element involving Jordan is why he lied to police when he was questioned. He initially told police that Savas had called him the morning of May 14th and told him to get the money, according to court documents. Jordan says that he watched Savas Sabopoulos' accountant get the money from a bank in Hyattsville and then put it in a manila envelope, which he took to the Sabopoulos' home. Jordan says that he put it on the seat of a locked red car inside the Sabopoulos' garage. But he later changes his story. And Jordan tells police, according to court documents, that his boss contacted him the night before, on May 13th, and instructed him to collect the money, that he never saw the bank transaction, and said the accountant had handed him the $40,000 in four bundles in a red bag. Jordan said he later put that money into the envelope and that the red car was unlocked when he put it inside the garage. Police won't say why Wallace had two versions of his account. But text messages that were obtained by the Washington Post in 2015 confirm that Wallace sent a text to Savas at 8.30 p.m. on May 13th. Quote, got your message. I'll call you once I get the package. The next day, police said that Wallace texted and called several people, including a woman to whom he sent a photo of the red bag and money at 9 a.m. Damn, the woman responded. 
I wonder how much it is. Wallace responded, 40, to which the woman texted back, Jesus. The woman has never been identified, but it was reported by several news outlets, New York Daily News, Daily Mail, Fox 5, and others, that that woman was Jordan's girlfriend. At 10.26 a.m., the police records show Wallace texted Savasavopoulos, package delivered. Wallace then drove to Virginia to work on one of his boss's projects, a martial arts studio, the dojo studio. The fire was discovered at about 1.15, and police say Wallace was in Chantilly at the time. He learned about the fire from someone at American Iron Works and then texted Amy and Savas several times as he drove back to their home. Hey, Miss Amy, are you okay? If so, you need to get home. I got a call that your house is on fire. Police said the family were already dead when Wallace was texting. But Jordan was questioned a couple of times by police and never charged or named a suspect. Then he disappeared. From what we could find, Jordan doesn't have a criminal past. He has a couple of speeding incidents, but nothing beyond that. We asked Jordan's former coworker and friend, Garrett, if he knows where Jordan is now. And do you guys have any idea where he is now? Um, from what I know now, he's in California at Sonoma Raceway as a racing instructor. We had heard the same thing, that Jordan Wallace was living in Petaluma, California and working at Sonoma Raceway. We sent a reporter from our sister station to knock on some doors, but they were unable to locate Jordan. Neighbors said that his picture didn't look familiar. The only remaining pictures of Jordan that show a sneak peek into his life are on an Instagram account called Broke Racers Club. The last post was made in February of 2015. One more thing. Over the past several months, as we've been researching this story, we'd heard that Jordan's father, Michael Wallace, was a retired police officer. But on June 1st, 2017, we received a letter from Prince George's County government indicating that Michael Wallace remains an active Prince George's County police officer today, and he was hired in 1989. Also in the arrest warrant, police make note of an accountant who orchestrated the $40,000 delivery. The accountant that's referenced in the arrest warrant has never publicly been named. We know the accountant was in contact with Savas during his capture and Jordan Wallace, and that's all we know. We know from the U.S. commander's office that Darrell Wendt was with Darren Wendt the night of his arrest. Darrell was in one of the box trucks. Darrell is 31 years old. He's the younger half-brother of Darren Wendt. They share the same father. And he has a criminal past as well. Most recent for driving on a suspended license and failing to appear in court. His next court hearing is September 18th, 2017. He was also arrested on December 2nd, 2011 in Tacoma Park, Maryland, another close suburb of Washington, D.C., for possession of marijuana with intent to distribute. He was arrested and charged by police. And in a news write-up, Darrell Wen described himself as a self-admitted gang member. Darrell pleaded guilty to the charges and was sentenced to one month and six days in jail. We knocked on Darrell's apartment door, but we were told that he didn't live there. The gentleman that was home at the time told us that he'd take a message for Darrell, that Darrell visited often, but so far we haven't been able to make contact with him. Samantha Went told us that she has little contact with her half-brother. The few pictures of Darrell that we found came from his MySpace account. On the night of Darren's arrest, Darrell was questioned and released. The other four individuals that were with Darren the night of his arrest were also questioned, released, and never named. But we do know from court records and from authorities that those individuals were detained by DC police. They were questioned that night, and that was it, completely let go. We wanted to know why aiding and abetting charges weren't brought against some of those individuals. But we were told that aiding and abetting charges can be very hard to stick and that DC detectives have a tough job when investigating a murder. Maybe there wasn't enough evidence. 
Either way, no one was arrested that night aside from Darren Wendt. We contacted the lead detectives in this case, but both declined to comment as it's still an open investigation. Why hasn't anyone else been arrested or named a suspect? Not enough evidence. Maybe they're more helpful on the street. Or maybe Darren Wendt did do it alone. Sounds like a lot for one person to mastermind and handle, especially for someone, according to his sister and others, who isn't capable of murder. But despite the widespread belief that there must have been others involved, we had two retired law enforcement officers explain to us how Wendt could have done it alone. Jim Trainum is a former homicide detective and has an interest in fairness and wrongful convictions. So much so that he wrote a book, How the Police Generate False Confessions. The guy is serious about his cases. Trainum has white hair, a white beard, medium build, and he's soft and sweet. No edge to him that you would think you'd find with a retired homicide police officer. And Jim is good friends with Greg McCreary, who's a former FBI agent, an expert witness and consultant, an author, a professor, and a former criminal profiler. McCreary has gray hair now, a cool demeanor, soft voice, and he kind of looks like a professor. He invited us to his home in Southern Virginia, which was beautiful, rural, sat on a lake. It looked like a scene out of the movie from The Bodyguard. And just a note, Jim and Greg spoke to us solely based on their experience, but they have no inside knowledge of this case. It was just their opinions based on what they'd read and researched of the situation. Jim Trainum explained to us that in cases like the Savopolis murders, people are way too eager to jump to conclusions. Do you think, and I guess anything is possible, but that Darren Wendt could have masterminded this completely by himself? Well, when you say mastermind, <laughs> you know, but, that might be the wrong word to use. Yeah, that's on a a, a, um, a spectrum there when it yeah, comes right. to masterminding. Um, but when you have a case like this, I think one of the biggest dangers is we automatically assume certain things. You know, it has to be more than one person involved. How would one person control all these different people in right. the house? How could how could just one person do all of these things? Look at an airplane hijacking. Typically, an airplane hijacking, especially back in the day, one hijacker could control all of those people. That's a good point. Because they were the one with the weapon, and everybody was going to be compliant. They learned, give the person what they want, and we'll be safe. So that automatic assumption that it has to be multiple people, it's we develop those theories way too quickly, and then we start um, kind of you know, molding the evidence to fit that theory. What about Darren's character? I wanted to know from a criminal profiler if someone who had assaulted people graduates to stabbing, beating, setting a family on fire, beating a child. Greg weighs in here as a former criminal profiler, and he says it's not that far of a stretch. It's, yeah, I mean, it's not that big a stretch, really, uh, over really? over time. Yeah, I mean, it's wow. not everybody's going to do that, obviously. But that's sort of, if you're looking for who would do something like this, you'd look for somebody sort of with the background that he has of multiple assaults, using knives, attacking uh, uh, folks. I mean, he attacked this guy in Oswego. He filed a complaint. Then he came back and tried to kill the guy after he filed a criminal complaint. Greg's right. Here's a clip from the news story. Stakes and moved here to the quiet upstate New York town of Oswego, living in this apartment building. It's in this port city nestled along Lake Ontario, where Michael Babcock is about to get into some hot water with Wint. After an altercation, Wint suddenly attacked. Darren had come out and was windmilling with the knives, and I went up at that and blocked, and that's where he stabbed me on the wrist. There was um, slices on my shirt and on my, on my chest and my stomach from where I didn't even know he had 
caught me. I thought he just said, stab me in my wrist. Wind was arrested and ordered to stay away from Babcock. But while waiting for trial, he suddenly ambushed Babcock a second time on this bridge. You know, all this sort of stuff. So high risk, you know, behavior. Again, and you get into motivation, that becomes um, always an issue. And I think we have to be careful not to oversimplify motivations because many times, you know, a single behavior can have multiple motivations. So it isn't just a case like this isn't necessarily just money. Uh, right. You know, there's okay. something else going on. And again, I don't know enough about the background or the history of his prior employment. I go through a lot of the details with Jim and Greg in this case, one by one. The pizza crust, the torched Porsche, the DNA. How does it link to just one person? Greg says that that torched Porsche found so close to Darren's sister's home is pretty incriminating against Darren, that criminals tend to go where they know. This is why geography plays an important part. In other words, when we look at body disposal sites or like this, a car disposal site or something, okay, we all use mental maps every day and offenders do the same thing. They go to places they're comfortable and familiar with, especially under stress. We don't go someplace brand new well, we've never been and risk getting detected or, you know, say if you're going to dispose of a body, where are you going to go? You're going to go someplace you don't know, you're unfamiliar with, you can risk being detected or apprehended. Or, or if you're going to, like this thing, dump a car, where are you going to go? Someplace you don't know, you've never been. No, you're going to go to someplace you're comfortable and familiar with. I asked Jim and Greg what they think about others in this case, co-conspirators. Could anyone else have been involved? Are there co-conspirators? Okay. Right, okay. which Are is there the other big question, co-conspirators? right? Co-conspirators. Then in a case like this, once you have a suspect identified, which there's no doubt, you know, when is it, you know, he's involved in this thing. Uh, if there are co-conspirators, there's all sorts of planning that went in beforehand. So now the stuff that happened pre-offense behavior becomes really important. Who was he talking to? Who who was he in touch with? What does the phone record show? What, you know, you know, all, all of this. I mean, who's he going to deal with if he's got co-conspirators? Some stranger? No, it's going to be people close to him that he knows for whatever reason that he trusts that he thinks are like-minded enough to go along with something like this. So all of that, you know, comes into play. And I have to believe that investigators have looked at all that stuff in depth and apparently come up empty, you know, at this uh, this point. I ask about the $40,000. Why would one person do this all, murder four people, risk everything for $40,000? But Jim and Greg say that the $40,000 isn't a big surprise to them, that the public may have been surprised, but that criminals do a lot more for a lot less. $40,000, people make a big deal about, why would he do this for just $40,000? He might have just wanted money. He didn't know how much money, well, $40,000 would probably be a lot to him, but the victims might not have been able to collect that much money. That Mm. might have been the maximum amount that they could get at one time. And uh, maybe that was part of the... um, of the violence that occurred in the house, he wanted more. And didn't and, get them. And he kept prodding them for more, but they finally convinced him that that's all that they could put their hands on. Because he didn't have a lot of time. He couldn't stay there for days while they, you know, gathered up all their different assets. Uh, he had to act quickly. And, of course, I couldn't put my hands on $40,000 in, in a matter of hours. <laughs> I'm very limited in what I, I could. Um, it, that might have been the same situation. Jim and Greg are starting to create a picture for me that not only could Darren have been involved, but he may have done it by himself. If that's true, though, then why haven't police come forward and retracted their original statements that others were involved? Jim and Greg have worked on police forces for years. So what gives? 
tell me this from both of you from a law enforcement perspective. Police came out, Chief Lanier came out, the mayor came out. Initially, everybody said there are multiple suspects in this case. Okay, so they come out and say that. If there are not multiple suspects, if Darren Wynn just did this by himself, why have they not retracted that statement? If he did it by himself, they possibly might not want to just because they don't want to say that they're wrong. They might be still, they might still have the mindset that there are multiple suspects out there and they're still looking for them. They're just hitting walls and not going anywhere with it. That could be the reason. I, I don't know. Or they have developed multiple suspects and they're under the umbrella of the U.S. Attorney's Office. They're in their web and they'll come forward as the case progresses. But Jim says that in a high-profile case like this, he's pretty certain that police did their research. In a case like this, do you think it will come out in trial if, in fact, I think there's been some question of how far police did dig or did they dig enough to get Darren Wendt and then basically stop and go, okay, great, this high-profile case is solved, we're done. That would happen probably a lot more frequently in less high-profile cases, Mm. but because of the scrutiny that this case is going to undergo, especially the U.S. Attorney's Office is going to make sure that they explore every possible avenue and leave no stone unturned. And so I'm pretty confident that they did continue and that they just didn't say, okay, we got the arrest, we got the stat, let's move on. There's, there's too much focus on this case for them to do that. Greg agrees with Jim that police were probably very thorough with this case, but he does have an issue with the others that were with Darren the night of his capture, why they were never arrested, why they were never brought in. You know, I agree with Jim. I don't think they're going to leave any stone unturned in trying to develop everything, that they've got an answer for, for everything and uh, where that's developed. I mean, one of the other issues here, I think, that has raised some eyebrows is they make the arrest of Wint that night. You got the other folks with them in the car, in the truck. You got money. Yes. And boom, they're turned loose. Nobody else is arrested. What's going on? It's hard to know. I mean, are these people who cut a deal? Are these people who are out working for the police in some way? That is, are, I'm so glad you brought that up. Why would, what, give us some scenarios as to why police would let that people go, would well, let them go. Like I say, unless they cut a deal with them, that they, if you can put me back on the street, I can give you this guy, I can show you that, I can, but I got to be out there. I can't do it in here. You got to let me go. You know, I can get out there and and uh, get you more information. I mean, I don't know. This is a hypothesis. I'm not saying that's what happened. But when you cut guys loose like that, I mean, they're clearly, if you wanted to, again, I'm not an attorney. I would defer to the U.S. attorney. If you wanted to charge him with aiding and abetting or anything like that, I think you got a pretty good case. Jim and Greg had told me that lots of times we, the public, love to believe there's more to a story. Mob ties, conspiracy. But for the most part, that's just not true. Greg says, we're just probably down to this one guy, Darren Went. You had said at the beginning of this interview that lots of times these cases, the public, we like to believe they're much more mysterious and there's lots of layers and all that. But in fact, lots of times they're very simple. Do you think this is a simple case or do you think there are many more layers, like perhaps the mob was involved and other people? I don't see it as a big conspiratorial case. Certainly, I don't think anyone is doubting Wint's involvement in a thing. So then... Who does he know? I mean, who is he involved with mob guys? No, he's he's just kind of a, a lone offender out there, you know, right. doing, doing this stuff. Uh, does he have other friends around that, you know, he might be able to talk into doing something like this? It's possible. But I think those avenues have been pretty much explored by, by this point. And as Jim said, either they've got people in the web and they've got things figured out 
and it'll all be explained during trial, or we're just down to this guy. After talking to Jim and Greg, it doesn't seem too far-fetched that Darren not only could have been involved, but could be guilty and may have acted alone. We don't know for sure during the 19 hours that the Savopoulos family and Vera Figueroa were being held hostage if they were totally compliant, if they tried to resist. But what we do know is that they had many chances throughout their capture that they could have alerted someone that something was wrong, that these murders could have been prevented. We'll take a look at those chances next week. Coming up on The Mansion Murders. Did the Savopolis family and their housekeeper, Vera, have chances to escape and notify someone that they were being held against their will? Typically, the first thing that kicks in is, is the mode to survive. You know, it's the old fight or flight, or in this case, compliance. To me, it seems odd. But you said you guys get all kinds of requests. Yeah, I'm saying to a person that um, really doesn't know about it, you know, they, they always think, oh, man, they just called to leave the pizza there. There sometimes is are cases where the, the actual victim is involved in getting money from their own accounts to uh, cover debts, gambling debts or, or other financial matters and then claiming it against the company or insurance. Thank you for listening to The Mansion Murders, a Fox 5 true crime podcast. And a big thanks to our team, some of the other people that helped me put this episode together. Ronnie McRae, shooter and editor, Dan Rabin for an extra set of ears, and Judith Ayers, researcher. If you want more Mansion Murders, you can see what went into this episode. Visit our YouTube page for a video recap. Just search Fox 5 DC or visit our website, fox5dc.com. We'll also post the surveillance video that we discussed at the start of this episode so you can see the person of interest for yourself at fox5dc.com. 